So, uh, today's, today's series of lectures is going to be um, about the interest rate spread and the afternoon lecture will be moving on to the concept of basis and co-basis. So, knowledge of the interest rate spread, the bid-offer spread, is a prerequisite to understanding the uh, basis and co-basis, which I'll define later on, but which I'm sure many of you know anyway. Um, what I'm going to start with, though, is just a, a very short um, prelude um, explaining how Menger, well, how I think Menger intended the concept of marginal utility to, to be expressed. Now, um, it's important to get in your heads that economic action is discrete. Now, discrete means that um, there is one choice and then there's another choice and another choice. There isn't an infinite series of choices in between. Um, so, mathematics, as it's used in economics, is restricted because of that. So calculus, which I'm sure many of you know, um, works on um, the set of continuous things, you know, continuous things. So if you see any economics with an integral sign or a derivative sign, throw it in the bin. Um, you can only work with discrete mathematics. So there are analogies between discrete and continuous mathematics. But, um, for example, there is a differential equation dy by dx equals x1 minus x. Okay, I'm not going to go into it, but the point is that that is a very simple differential equation and it can be solved by a schoolboy. Um, it's not difficult. You have the uh, discrete form that's the discrete form of that. Now the dynamics of that, if you could describe it in its entirety, would win you the Nobel Prize equivalent in mathematics. Um, so, whilst, it's, whilst, you, whilst there is a sort of um, a correspondence between continuous and differential math, uh, continuous and discrete maths, the dynamical systems that you might get as a result of it are completely different. And, as I said, schoolboy can solve that. And generality, this is called like the logistic map, that would win you a Fields Medal if you could describe its uh, properties fully. So, there are some economists who don't believe that economic action is discrete, but they're just wrong, and uh, that's the end of it. So, when it comes to marginal utility and um, Menger's axiom about value not existing outside of the consciousness, of the uh, perceiver, it's, it's good to, to, to just sort of um, expand about how you get from that statement 
to the statement of utility at the margin determines value. Now, I'm going to give a quick example of uh, which I've given before, so some of you might know this, the use of water. So, assuming water is restricted in supply, it has a set of ordinal uses. So, for example, the most important use would be for quenching thirst. And the second most important thing might be quenching your animal's thirst. And then once you've had those two things satisfied, it might be um, washing the dishes with the water. And then if that's satisfied, you have um, watering the plants, something like that. But the point is that um, the way that um, water is being valued here is by, is by clearing a proposition. So something, an object has utility if it satisfies a conscious proposition. So the first conscious proposition, P1, was uh, quenching thirst. The second proposition was uh, watering pet. Giving water to the pet. And the third one was, um, what was it, uh, washing dishes. And the fourth one was um, watering flowers. So e each, of these, um, each of these propositions is um, declining in importance. And you can say that one proposition is more important than the other if it needs to be satisfied first. Um, so that's the starting point, and you can see we're being very discreet here. I'm not drawing any graphs about total utility or marginal utility as it's presented in um, common economic um, courses. Um, so corresponding to each of these propositions, you have the, um, the amount of, oh, sorry, you have the amount of substance that is needed to satisfy the proposition. So you have an amount, call it U, U1, U2, U3, U4. And this is where we get the concept of stock to flow. Uh, stocks to flow. So this is the amount of water that's needed. And you can see that you might need a lot of water to quench your thirst, slightly less water to empty your pet, slightly less water even still to wash your dishes, and slightly less water even still to... You, it might not be, you know, but the point is though that the way that this is expressed in the physical world is by looking at its stocks to flow, as it were. So the only way that you can see in the, in, in, the, in the real world around you what the concept of something's marginal utility is, is to look at its stocks to flow ratio, if you can express it in that form anyway. Okay, so that's the end of the, the prelude on marginal utility. Just, just a quick question, what's the flow? 
The stock is clear, but the flow well, is the, the... The flow would be the, 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 the last, the amount that's being produced for the last proposition. So if water is still being used here, yeah. well, it, of course it's still being used, okay, but it would be something like U4 over U1 plus U4. Okay. Sorry, that's flow over stop. Uh, other way around. Okay, so we're not getting, um, not involving any calculus, um, not involving any continuous maths. Throw away all of those things that's, that have total utility. Total utility of water doesn't mean anything. I mean, but it, it only means something when you're talking about the physical space, sort of the use. Then you can talk about it, you know. So that is just a brief, um, a brief sort of description. And you can see the, um, that it's very elegant. And I think that this is the way that Menger would, would, may have liked to express it, um, rather than um, in any other particular way. And I'm not going to go into it now, but obviously it's assumed that the importance of these propositions is declining. And hence you get the concept of declining utility at the margin. And obviously this is true if you have to work to get a substance, you know, like a, a pretzel or something like that. But objects which you don't have to work to get don't necessarily satisfy that, uh, the principle of utility declining at the margin. But that's philosophy and I'll go into that at lunch if anyone's interested. So um, now we're going to move on to um, the interest rate spread. An arbitrage between uh, the gold market and the bond market. Um, so, Karl Menger uh, was the first to, uh, to, to realize that a market doesn't quote one price, it quotes uh, two prices the bid and the offer. And uh, prices get cleared within that range, the bid and the offer. So, for example, if you go to the, the London Exchange and you want to, you, you ask for a quote on Unilever, you'll be given a quote something like 2,000 pence at 2,005 pence, and that is the spread. And if you want to buy at leisure, you have to pay 2,005. Um, if you don't want to buy at leisure and want to haggle, you have to leave an order in the spread. And you might get hit, you might not. So this is an important concept to get. There's no such thing as the price of anything. It depends on whether you're, you're buying or selling. Um, and this also applies, obviously, to um, the bond market. The bond market quotes uh, a bid and an offer as well. So this was Professor's um, extension of Menger's work, was to combine this observation with the theory of interest. Um, so that's where we will end up. But it's probably good to, uh, to show how this, this process of creating a bid and an offer 
how one arrives at this, this bid and offer thing. And I'm going to give a very simple example. Um, the example of the bidding process. So take the example of a copper auction. £100 of copper is put up for auction in a large auction house. The bidders, should there be any for the copper, will bid up the exchange price such that the reluctance of the potential marginal bidder to bid presents the current bid <laughs> for copper. Now, <laughs> I should have made that statement a bit clearer, I think, but uh, <laughs> what that means is that um, the bidders will pile up on top of each other, bidding copper up. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, um, until um, the marginal bidder refuses to bid, and the bid on copper is that bid that that person is willing to bid. If you want to go in and bid ahead, go ahead. But at some point, someone won't, and that represents uh, the bid, the bid for copper. Hmm? Um, no. <laughs> Why would it be like an option? Well, when up. Oh yeah, well it's someone's choice, you know. Uh, obviously it's, it's free will. Um, okay. So, um, the benefit of an auction, and I'm talking specifically about an auction here, is that, um, the price at which the good is sold will be guaranteed. You just don't know what the price will be because the auction has to end at a certain point and at that point that is what the price will clear at. The copper, the copper will be offered at the price that the person is bidding and it closes and that's the price. So, um, is that clear? That's pretty clear. Good. Um, it's important to realise that the offer for copper is what that man's bid is as the auction closes. And that's the price that clears. And that's the, uh, the price for copper at that auction. Um, but copper isn't, um, isn't traded on the global marketplaces on an auction basis. Um, but a two-way bid-ask basis. So the bid and the offer are necessarily different at all times, but the benefit versus the auction for copper is that a definite acquisition price for copper can be obtained by anyone wishing to acquire copper. Okay, so that's the difference. There's a, yes, you, if you want copper, and the only way that you can get it is by participating in an auction, you have no idea what price you'll pay to get that copper, but you know you can get it. So then what would happen? Some chap would see what prices the, the, the copper is clearing at at the auction, and let's say it tends to clear at between 14 and 15. And he'll say, well, I'll, I'll, leave, an, I'll leave my copper on offer at 17. So if anyone wants to take their chance and buy copper 
at or below 17 at the auction, go ahead. But if you really need the copper, you can have it at 17. And you can see how um, an auction process will develop into a two-way quotes process. If what? If that good is marketable enough. If that good is marketable enough, an auction process for establishing the price of something will develop into a two-way quote market. Because someone will be willing always to offer the copper at a certain, at a certain price. So is that clear how you can see how an auction would evolve into a um, two-way quote market, bid offer spread? Okay. So you have someone who's willing to um, your copper bid fifteen, your copper offer nineteen, and these are just the pure buyers and sellers, people who wish to buy and sell copper for whatever their, their needs are. But that doesn't complete the story. Uh, because um, you have someone called the market maker as well. And this was the price that was tending to be cleared at auction. He comes in and says, right, I will um, bid at, 50, at 16, offer it at 18. He narrows the spread. So this market maker is, is a person, and he's seen an opportunity. He's seen that the, 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 the market spread is quite high for something that is as marketable as, as copper. And he says, right, I'll take some copper and cash, and I will make a quote myself. And um, this was done... Um, this concept was um, developed quite well in London um, during the uh, 17th century. And what happened back then when you wanted to uh, trade stocks, uh, you had to go to uh, a coffee shop in the centre, one of many coffee shops in the centre of London. And um, all the buyers would sort of queue at one end and the sellers would queue at another end and there'd be coffee and smoking and discussions and only the people who wanted this stock or didn't want the stock were in that coffee house and they were all well to do as you can imagine and but as you can also imagine the spreads would be astronomically wide between someone who enters the coffee shop and wants to buy or sell themselves because you have to buy directly from someone who wants to sell and you have to sell directly to someone who wants to buy. So what happened was that a cheeky chappy called uh, the um, jobber, the jobber was born. So he walked into the coffee shop and he saw the spread for South Sea Company stock at let's say 10, 15 pounds and said, right, I'm going to close that spread and offer it 
uh, bid at 11 and offer it at 12. So what do you think the rest of the people in the coffee shop thought when this man came in and did that? Do you think they, do you think they liked him? Not much. Not much. And uh, he was, uh, the, 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 the job, the role of market maker, Jobber, was, um, was vilified in, uh, in, in 17th, 18th century London. Yeah. Why didn't they like him? He's offering the guy more and he's willing to sell it lower. I mean, they should like him. They should like him, but the guy that wanted to sell now has to come ahead of the market maker. So this aristocrat here wanted to sell at 19, while this barrow boy here came in and offered it at 18. So of course, you know, he'll be upset. But the barrow boy, uh, sorry, the, the jogger is not um, a, a, an evil speculator, sort of uh, manipulating market prices. He's making the market more what? Efficient. Efficient. Okay. So. The, they were very wrong to vilify the, the, the market maker back then. So that completes it. So you have the market maker closing the spread. And if you want to buy and sell at the best, best price, you'll be um, buying at his offer and you'll be selling to him at his bid. Unless someone else comes in ahead of him and makes a narrower Okay. So, interest rate is not excluded from this bid-ask observation, and um, it's very, very um, important to realise that because there's no such thing as the interest rate. There is an interest rate spread, a bid-offer spread, on the interest rate as well. So, the interest rate manifests itself via the, the what market? Bond market. So namely, the bid on the bond, let's have a bond, let's call it 101 at 105. This is the price of the bond, not its yield. So the bid on the bond represents or relates to the ask for the interest rate and the ask on the bond relates to the bid on the interest rate. Could, could you point out that when you say offer that's exactly the same as ask? Yes. Offer. offer. Yeah. Sorry. That's uh, <coughs> offer. That's, I interchanged that word with ask. Okay. So, uh, the, um, the bid on the bond, 
represents the ask on the interest rate, let's say 5%, 4.5%. So if you want to borrow money, you have to sell a bond. And if you want to deposit money, you have to buy a bond. If you want to borrow money, you'll be paying the interest rate ask. If you want to deposit money, you'll be receiving the interest rate bid. So they swap round, and that's quite, that's quite clear to see, I think, is it? Does everyone see that? OK. But I'm not going to talk about it in terms of price. I'm going to talk about this in terms of interest rate bid ask spread. So the, the second, the second um, line here. So just before I elaborate further, the floor of the interest rate is determined from the competition of savers and the ceiling by the competition of producers. The floor of the interest rate is determined by temporal considerations and the ceiling by spatial or productive considerations. Now, um, I'm interchanging spatial and productive here because an increase in productivity is just a higher arrangement of the objects around you in the space. So um, what, what, what do I mean by that? Um, the jet engine, for example, the jet engine was there in Mesopotamia 5,000 years ago. Okay? It just took 5,000 years for them to realize how to arrange aluminium ore, copper, plastic together, uh, develop a bit of mathematics, physics, engineering, to figure out how to arrange the space around them into a jet engine. Okay? So productivity is to do with space. It's to do with the rearrangement of your, uh, the objects around you in space. So this has actually been misunderstood through, throughout the ages. There were two competing schools and they thought that there was no, there was no, um, there was no way of amalgamating them. The time preference school of interest and the productivity school of interest. So time, time preference theory assumes a time premium. Time premium exists, sort of a kind of fee for having substituted present for future goods. So that theory assumes there's a reason for this regardless of whether there is a productive use for that good. So as a counterpoint to that, the producti productivity theory of interest says uh, that the marginal productivity of capital determines the, uh, the rate of interest. And this is where Professor Feketer stepped in expanding on uh, Menger's observation. And he was the first. And uh, this is revolutionary, this observation, combining both the time preference school and the productivity school. And it can only be done with reference to Menger. So this is what Professor says, and I'm going to read it out here. 
The market process responsible for the formation of the rate of interest is driven by two distinct and independent arbitrage operations. The horizontal arbitrage of the marginal bondholder between the bond and the gold market establishing the floor. The floor for the rate of interest is determined by the rate of marginal time preference. This is just the rate at which the opportunity cost of holding the bond becomes critical to the marginal bondholder. At the next downtick in the rate of interest, he will sell the bond in view of his opportunity to carry wealth in the form of a present good rather than a future good. Okay? Now, um, I will elaborate a bit with an example to show this in action. you have an amount of gold um, that you want to do something with, um, you want to put it on deposit somewhere, uh, you will go to the, um, you'll go to your bank, your investment bank, and you'll say, I want to uh, put my money out for, uh, for five years. And he will say, right, um, Five-year, the five years. The, let's say you can get you can get a five-year deposit for five percent. Could you write a bit in bigger letters? Five percent. Okay. So remember that the person that is putting money on deposit is referencing the what, the interest rate bid or offer. When someone goes and puts gold on deposit, what, what interest rate do they reference? The bid or the offer? Offer. Bid. Yeah. <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be putting the money in at a lower rate, or at the lowest rate, so it would be the, the bid. Okay? So um, he says, right, you can, you, can, you can deposit money at 5%, which is effectively the same as saying that this chap is buying a bond. Okay. Um, and so the next chap comes in and says, I want to do the same. Well, that one was taken by the one who got there first. The next one available is at 4.96%. Takes it. You know, willing to take it. Then another chap comes in and says, um, I want to do it as well, I want to deposit money for, for five years, and he sees, oh, it comes down to four and a half percent now. Okay. And this leaves, let's say, the interest rate bid at three percent. So the next person comes into the investment bank and sees that um, the interest rate bid is three percent. That's not enough for him. So he exits from the investment bank, and that is the, the interest rate bid. And that's the floor of the interest rate set there. His reluctance to, do, to lend money at that rate presents the price that someone else can lend at if they want to. Is that clear? Okay, good.
So now um, we're going to talk about the uh, interest rate ask. And again, reading from uh, the notes, the vertical arbitrage of the marginal entrepreneur between the stock market and the bond market establishes the ceiling for the rate of interest. So the ceiling for the rate of interest is determined by the rate of marginal productivity of capital. That is the rate at which the opportunity cost of controlling ownership and productive enterprise becomes critical to the marginal entrepreneur. At the next uptick in the rate of interest, he will sell the stock in view of his opportunity to carry his earning assets in the form of bonds. So um, I hope that uh, I'm not going to go through it, but um, you just flip that around basically and you apply a similar argument. This time though it's not the person who wishes to deposit money that is the guy that is acting at the margin, but the person that wishes to borrow money that is determining the interest rate, the, the marginal person that wishes to borrow money for whatever purpose that's determining the ceiling of the interest rates. So um, the first statement incorporated time and the second statement incorporated productivity which can be more accurately described as a superior rearrangement of the objects around you. Oh, okay. I've actually got that. I didn't realise I'd put that in here. But um, I've given a pictorial example of what I was describing here. So, um, please feel free um, to read that. So, it's just worth briefly sort of saying how, um, how, we, how, how the current system operates. Um, Naturally, if this was left to the market, the market would determine the, the interest rate spread. Um, but what happens um, in central bank activity is that they, uh, they, wish to, they have a target rate. They have a target rate which they think is the magic number which will, I don't know, do whatever they, they think needs to be done. Zero. Zero. <laughs> certainly at the short end and um, what happens is that their action usurps this natural mechanism they will push the interest rate down beneath that level which the marginal uh, depositor as it were would naturally want to deposit money at and so what does that induce? It induces credit expansion unnecessarily. Because you're lending out, you're forcing someone effectively to lend out money that they don't want to be lent out at that rate. And you don't have a choice in it. When you put money in a bank on demand deposit, 
which means that it should literally just be equivalent to a safety deposit box, okay, they will invest it in government securities of any duration, any, any maturity, um, completely against the, the will or the implied will of the depositor. So anyone that has a demand deposit account that pays interest, these two things aren't congruous. You can't have your money whenever you want it and earn an income in the interim. Because that implies you can't have your money whenever you want it. It's put in some kind of asset which is not very marketable per se. A government bond is not marketable in its own right. Which explains why during the late 17th, early 18th century there was this preoccupation with developing a huge secondary market for government bonds. And the reason was that, um, say for example, you put in £100 in the bank and £95 of that is put in 10-year gilts. The gilt is the British Treasury, uh, equivalent of the Treasury bond in Britain. So, if you want that cash in its entirety, it's not a case of the banker not having the cash, or fractional reserve banking, you know, rearing its ugly head and sort of printing more receipts than there, are, than there is money. He has an asset behind your £100 deposit, it's just not in something very marketable unless there is a very liquid secondary market for that, for that. So that's why they wanted to promote all of these bond exchanges and exchanges in general. It was to provide a very liquid market for, for, for government bonds. And the reason was is that the banker needed to make sure there was a bid for his government securities if you came in through the doors wanting your cash. So you can see that this is the way that banking works. Banking didn't originate by you putting in a hundred pounds and then issuing five thousand pounds worth of receipts. That was not the way that banking developed. Banking developed um, by, uh, well, Western banking developed by this process, investing deposits in securities um, which are presumed to be marketable, certainly to have a bid, um, but as we all know, they don't have a bid when the, uh, when, the market, when, when the bank wants it to have a bid. If everyone comes in through the doors wanting their money, um, the, uh, the bid on the bond will suddenly go through the floor and you know what that means for the interest rate um, and that induced economic um, hardship it induced what is called the business cycle now I know in some, 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 um, in some um, explanations about what Austri Austrian economics is about they say it's about the business cycle well, the business cycle is not a natural consequence of economic activity. 
the business cycle is a consequence of not matching your uh, durations properly between your assets and your liabilities. And this is something that Professor will talk about later called illicit interest arbitrage, where you don't match the intentions of the depositors with what they actually want. And also borrowing short. Borrowing short to lend long. This effectively, the operation of investing demand deposits in, even in overnight money, is borrowing short to lend long. When you get a 10-year mortgage on three-month rolling money, that is borrowing short to lend long. When the government issues $1 trillion worth of debt without having any productive purpose for it, and they have to roll it at the end of its maturity, that is another form of borrowing short to lend long. So this is, this is the essential problem with the... Um, with the system as we have it, but this is not new. This is the way it's operated since many centuries ago. And the consequence of that was the business cycle. And people confused that with being on a gold standard. They said, oh, gold is too rigid, you know, you can't expand it when you need to. It had nothing to do with the gold. Even if you use cowrie shells for your monetary system, this would still happen. And lo and behold, we're using paper for our monetary system, and it still happens. So, um, the point about it is that it's to do with the, uh, the, matching, the matching of the, uh, the durations. So, um, in summary, we have an interest rate spread, and you will have to remember this when I go into the next lecture um, after lunch about the, the basis and the co-basis. Because the basis and the co-basis is just a, it's a different way of looking at the interest rate bid offer spread. Except with a futures market. Now, you can look at a futures market in exactly the same way, exactly the same analogy as you look at the, uh, the deposit system of the, of, 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 uh, uh, of, the, of the banking system. There's an exact analogy between the futures market and the banking system. And it's also, um, we will also um, destroy GATA and their misinterpretation of the futures market as well. Now, it's, it's, it's very easy, and I'll just give you an interlude, prelude into that. Um, the way that um, many people see the futures market is in a very naive way. They will look at the total open interest on the exchange. They will look at the warehouse deposits of gold or silver, and they'll say, ah, it doesn't match. So they must be printing more gold futures and silver futures and manipulating the price downwards to their ends, well, they're not. I mean, they might be, but that's not the, um, that's not the reason why there are more futures outstanding than there is um, gold or silver at the warehouse. 
That would be the case in, in, in any futures market anyway. But the shenanigans in the futures market are related to uh, matching your durations. So, um, but that's for, um, that's for after lunch. Um, so now I think I'll invite, and I'm sure there must be, a lot of questions. No? Okay, good. Uh, Peter. If I understand you correctly, the development of the secondary market in either municipal bonds, corporate bonds, government bonds, by the financial industry, is the, well, say, the cause of the business cycle, because in that secondary industry they can match mm. the that's the correct understanding. Yeah, it's sort of like um, yeah. If you know there's a uh, if you know that there's a, a a lever which you can pull to get you out of trouble, you'll behave badly. <laughs> so um, yeah, it is it is sort of um, an element of that. Having a secondary market in the bond was like the bank having an option to have itself bailed out if it wanted to. So that's why you have all of this patriotic rubbish about you must buy government bonds and this, that and the other and you can buy them through your post office and all of this rubbish, you know. Government bonds are not marketable instruments. And the reason they're not marketable on the whole is because they, they, they liquidate, they mature very far into the future. And um, on that same basis, mortgages are not very marketable instruments. You know, because again, they mature at a very distant period in the future before it turns into uh, hard cash again. Um, so yeah, that's why you need to develop a secondary market for these very unmarketable items. Now, this isn't the subject of my talk, but no one needed any, um, any prodding to develop a secondary market for real bills. The real bill market developed spontaneously, and it certainly didn't need the government telling them to, 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 to develop a market for real bills. Because a real bill, <laughs> Professor hasn't talked about it yet, and, and neither have I, uh, but a real bill is the most marketable instrument next to gold or silver itself. And no one needed any prodding to make a bid for a real bill. Keith. Can you go into a little more detail about the vertical arbitrage of the marginal entrepreneur? Hmm. Yeah, okay. So, um, this was when we were talking about the bidding, uh, the depositor. Coffee break. Coffee break. We'll do it after. We'll do it after the coffee break. Okay. 